Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Andrew C. McKevitt to discuss his new book, Gun Country, Gun Capitalism, Culture, and Control in Cold War America, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2023. The United States has more guns than people, a condition that is unprecedented in world history. Scholars often focus on gun culture, the Second Amendment, or the history of gun safety, duties, and rights. Often people assume that the number of guns is a natural state. The guns were always there. But were the guns always there? And what caused the drastic boom in firearms? And when did it happen? In Gun Country, Andrew McKevitt investigates how and when the guns arrived and why so many people bought them. McKevitt argues that what Americans refer to as gun culture in the 21st century, quote, emerged out of the intersection of the Cold War and consumer capitalism in the 1950s and 1960s, close quote. A booming consumer market following World War II, coupled with a surplus of cheap firearms readily available for American entrepreneurs to resell, laid the groundwork for rampant firearm distribution in the country. War made the United States into a gun country, but U.S. gun politics, interwoven with struggles over race and gender, can't be detached from consumer politics. And he notes that gun safety and gun rights organizations both demand consumer regulations and protection. Dr. Andrew C. McKevitt is the John D. Winters Endowed Professor of History at Louisiana Tech University. His previous book, Consuming Japan, Popular Culture and the Globalizing of 1980s America, was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2017, and he received the Stuart L. Bernath Scholarly Article Prize from the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. Drew is also a St. Joseph's University alumnus, History Department, Class of 2022. 2002. So we have an all SGAU interview today. And for those who know or care, the hawk will never die. Welcome, Drew, to New Books Network. Susan, thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for having me. Thanks for that introduction. And of course, it's good to talk to somebody back on Hawk Hill, whether you're there physically or or metaphorically, we're all all still on Hawk Hill. (laughs) We're all still there. So You've published on popular culture and consumer politics before, uh, and you have this background in foreign relations. How did you come to write a book on guns? Yeah, it's a good question because very few people are trained to be gun historians, right? Historians are trained to do things like write about uh, a particular century in U.S. history, or they're trained in social history, cultural history. Uh, I my f- background was in foreign relations history, so I came about I came to this subject uh, kind of roundaboutly. So my my first book was about U.S. Japan relations in the 1970s and the 1980s, and I took a a cultural approach to that. I was less interested in formal diplomacy and more interested in consumption and consumerism. And so I wrote about Americans consuming Japanese things. And I was really interested in how that relationship manifested in at the local level. So for example, I wrote about Honda arriving in the United States in central Ohio in the early 1980s and how that affected local politics and culture and, and, and the economy and so forth. 
And so when I first got this job in Louisiana, it was 2012, um, I knew nothing about my new home's connection to Japan and this subject I was writing about, right? So I was interested in the local impact of Japanese globalization in the 1970s and the 1980s. So it began with something as simple as a Google search for <laughs> Japan and Louisiana, which sounds very embarrassing, but it was as simple as a Google search. And I came across this subject that I, I knew nothing about and had never seen over the course of my research, which was the 1992 shooting death of Yoshi Hattori, who was a 16-year-old Japanese exchange student who was killed in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, around Halloween time when he was looking for a Halloween party and knocked on the wrong door. Uh, and this was a tragic incident. Uh, many Americans saw it that way, but they also sort of cynically shrugged their shoulders and thought, well, this is the country we are, 30,000 gun deaths a year. What interested me was that Yoshi's killing became an international incident. Uh, the reaction in Japan was strong and, and uh, uh, full of passion and emotion about a child being shot to death when he knocked on the wrong door by a man who answered the door effectively armed with a gun. And so uh, Yoshi's parents in, in Japan and his parents in uh, his host parents in Louisiana in the aftermath of his death and in the aftermath of the acquittal of his killer, they work together to build a gun control movement. Uh, it's a really interesting one that's asking new questions about guns in a global context, in a kind of transnational context. Why is the United States the way it is and why is it so exceptional in the world? And that really fascinated me. And so at first I thought maybe I'd, I'd write about that case and this kind of transnational gun control movement because that's, as someone interested in foreign relations, we have this border crossing and this sort of thing. And the more I asked these questions that Yoshi's, that, that Yoshi's legacy, the, the gun control movement was asking about the United States and guns in a global context, the further it pushed me back. And at first, you know, there were lots of questions about, well, why is the United States so different from the rest of the world? But when I got back into documents in the 1950s and the 1960s, the question wasn't just why is the United States so different from the rest of the world, but also how has the rest of the world affected gun ownership and gun culture and gun violence in the United States, which was a thing I had not anticipated finding. Uh, and so as you mentioned in that introduction, I write a lot about guns coming into the United States and, and remaking the United States in that way. And so there's a connection there with, with the first book, which is that Japanese culture is coming into the United States and remaking culture and social relations in the United States. And in the book, I argue that, that guns do a similar thing after the Second World War. Uh, it's really a thrill because, you know, I saw some of your thinking about the book very early on on Twitter. You used to take photographs in the archives and put up small snippets. And I, I had this vague sense of what you were doing and also serious questions about what was the thread that was holding this all together. You know, I, and, and I, I found this book to be fabulous. I mean, I read very widely about gun culture and gun violence and gun politics, and I write on the Second Amendment. But I think what you're doing in this book is is unique. I think it's, it's actually being recognized, which is nice to see. The book is crossing over. People are talking about it in uh, the more public-facing uh, places, uh, uh, like the Washington Post. And, and, you know, one of the things that you say is that the, the how and why the country became so, your words, abundantly well-armed remains shrouded 
in myth. And I really found helpful this idea and the way that you uh, uh, pull, pull, pull the threads on this idea of this idea of a natural state. There's just something about the United States, you know, frontier, mil, mil, you know, don't, didn't, didn't the Minutemen have guns? Like, of course, like the Second Amendment is important. Yet we know the Second Amendment wasn't important, not until 2008. So, so, so there is something going on here. And I, I really like the way you try to separate uh, all of the really excellent things that have come before and what you're trying to do. So what I'd like to start with is for you to just say a little bit about what the scholarship in history, your field, looks like so that we can start to unpack why your book is making a very, very different um contribution. And I and I want to say that the way you do it in the book was so helpful. I hate literature reviews. I really don't want to, to read about what Hofstetter said, but I think what you do here is really uh, demonstrate why we are perhaps in the place we have been. But anyway, tell, tell us just a little bit about that earlier scholarship. Sure, of course. Well, thank you for the kind words about the book. I, I really appreciate that. And you know, it, it, there, so much of the literature on the history of guns in the United States is uh, centered on a few things, and the Second Amendment is one of them. And there's a richer literature on guns in the late 18th and early 19th century. Uh, we, of course, have an infamous book on guns in the United States in the late 18th and early 19th century. That is Michael Belial's Arming America, which is almost a quarter century old now, which, of course, became infamous when uh, it was discovered that he probably had fabricated sources. Um, but, you know, I think that book pointed to a methodology, not fabricating sources, but a legitimate methodology, which is focusing on the material reality of guns. Because so much of our conversation about the Second Amendment, and this is what historians have done, and it's very important work, but it is nevertheless focused on more abstract ideas about rights, about the Second Amendment, about law and how these things have changed over time. And there's great work on that, right? I think the, one of the most important books on this subject undoubtedly is, is Saul Cornell's the, the, A Well-Regulated Militia, which itself is you know, at least 18 years old now. Uh, but he does, I think, as good a job as anyone is talking about the founders and their not it's not their interpretation of the Second Amendment, but their various interpretations of the Second Amendment. Right. Because the founders disagreed about everything. So, of course, they're not going to agree about the Second Amendment. And so he outlines the various ways they saw the Second Amendment. And none of those ways essentially are the way in which the Second Amendment is interpreted in the late 20th century, which leads to the 2008 Heller decision. Uh, and so I wanted to know more about the material reality of guns and the kind of consumer economy of guns. And there's there's a, there's some good work on that in the 19th century. There's a book by Pamela Hag or Haig. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but it's called The Gunning of America, which is about the Winchester family. And uh she was able to get into the Winchester family records and show how uh, the Winchesters kind of created a consumer market in the 19th century. Uh, there's good work on Samuel Colt as well in that sense. And in both of these figures, what we see is the invention of a consumer market, right? Because there is no consumer market for guns in the late 18th century, early 19th century. There's nothing like a, a consumer market where guns are advertised, where they're marketed, uh, and so the, the, those figures like Colt and Winchester, they do a lot of inventing in the middle of the 19th century. But as you pointed to, like guns have always, you could point to any era in American history and, and the guns are there. 
arguably the United States has always been a gun country. I certainly would not argue that, well, there were no guns in the late 18th century. There were no guns in the 19th century. There were no guns until 1945. Obviously, that's absurd. But what happens after 1945, if we look at this material reality, is the dramatic explosion in the number of guns in the United States. I begin with these numbers at the beginning of the book, right? If we take 1945, the end of the Second World War, there are, as best as we can tell, and counting guns is a kind of mystical art in the United States, but as best as we can tell, there were about 45 million guns in the United States in 1945, out of a population of about 140 million, I think. Today, there are probably between 400 and 450 million guns in the United States, rapidly approaching half a billion guns in the United States. So the number of guns has increased tenfold. The U.S. population has only increased two and a half percent over that time. So even if the United States was a gun country from 1791 to or 1776 to 1945, why did that happen after 1945? How do we explain that explosion of gun ownership? And to my mind, there, that was just, that wasn't in the literature, right? I mean, it, the, the stuff we have on guns in the 20th century really is about, it's in part about gun violence, which begins to increase in the early 1960s. And it's about changing gun laws. It's about tracing the the prehistory of Heller back to these intellectual developments and legal studies and, and conservative thinking in the 1960s and 1970s. But nobody's talking about how that gun market explodes in the 1950s and 1960s. And so that was, uh, that was the question I wanted to answer. How do, how do we get from you know, 45 million to 450 million? How can we trace a thread through there? And how do we trace the responses to, to that development? No, and I'm glad you brought up Cornell's book, because I think that it's a great book. It's great history. It's well done. It really tries to show that there are no capital F founding fathers. Uh, there isn't, they're, they're not unified. They're pluralistic. They're fighting. Even the people who are in the same party have disagreements over very, very important things. And I, and I think what's happened in the United States is that because the Supreme Court has made this very radical turn towards the idea that history and tradition are what tell us something about the constitution, which uh, is very new, right? We'd, 2008 is really one of the earliest decisions in which we see originalism. And now we have a court in which even the uh, appointee uh, by President Biden, Justice Jackson says she's an originalist too. She wants to talk about the history of race and she wants to talk about more uh, complex history about the 14th Amendment. But she says she's an originalist. And I think this is fueling an industry of historians who are trying to answer the questions that the court has posed. What did the Second Amendment mean to the original understanding of the public in 1791 and 1868? So I, I and I, I don't want to discredit anybody because I think actually this this may be very, very important for people like Saul Cornell, for Reva Siegel, for them to be to be creating information. Laura Shepard was on the show recently talking about the people and its peace, another great book. But this notion of material reality isn't something that the Supreme Court or even Congress or the president tend to focus on. And so they don't have the data. They don't have the numbers. People are shocked to find out uh, that there are this many guns, that they're owned by so few, so few people. And I think in your case to say, well, what is this magic number, 1945? And 
that's not about frontier mythology because the frontier didn't change in 45. What is, and 45 is even too early to say, okay, this is about friction over race and open carry in cities. So you're, you, you've really, I, I think done something brilliant to say, okay, what, what's special about this number and, and what do we bring to as historians to this? Part of what historians do is they actually bring different sources than other disciplines do. And and you say that you were looking at sources that were a bit different from what other historians had used and that you were looking at things that were maybe less frequently used. Can you say a little bit about that, about what were these sources and, and what brought you to them and why are they more rarely used? Um, by historians looking at guns. Yeah, so they're they're really all over the place. There's no one sort of repository to to do this kind of thing. And when I started this project, that was that was kind of the the problem I ran into is like where do you go to at first I wanted to write a kind of history of gun control. So where do you go to write a history of gun control? And obviously there are legislative records and in fact the various committees that were doing this work in the 1960s first most intensely they did a really good job of record keeping and also publishing a lot of their records. So for instance, the records, uh, the published records of the uh, Juvenile Delinquency Subcommittee from the 1960s, this is the committee headed up by uh, Thomas Dodd, a um, senator from from Connecticut, a Democrat. Their records are so rich, tens of thousands of pages of, of documents, and they're so often publishing the data they get from various government agencies, and they're publishing letters they get and from, from witnesses, from people, they, people they've subpoenaed. It's such a rich record there. But beyond that, the first thing I sort of found was and this is again what led me down the path to work on this was the the material that the Yoshi Hattori's host family left behind after they they kind of wrapped up their work in the 1990s, uh, and they left all these were they were two professors at LSU at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, and they left all of their records there at LSU. And so I this is going back almost 10 years now. I thought let me just go down and and see what's in there. And it was it was fascinating, all of this material that could take you in so many different directions when it comes to thinking about legislative solutions to the problem, when it comes to thinking about how people build networks to confront these kinds of problems. So I had one archive of, of a gun control movement, and I thought, well, where do I go next? Um, and... Uh, you know, there, I, I discovered a couple others that fewer pe people haven't used all that often. One, both of them in Chicago, and this is you know part of the book as well. I write two chapters on Chicago. Uh, one is uh, one were the archives of a, a group called the um, Civic Disarmament Committee. They are founded by a woman named Laura Fermi in the early 1970s, and the other are the records of the Committee for Handgun Control. There both in Chicago, the first at the University of Chicago, the other at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, and But, you know, one of, one of the things that I think is really under, and both of those, I've, I've never seen them cited in any work on gun history. And so that, that just alone made me think, like, there's got to be something good in there. Uh, another thing that I think has been an underused source are the records of the Eisenhower Commission. So in, in the wake of MLK's killing and, and RFK's killing in 1968, Lyndon Johnson appoints the National 
Presidential National Commission on the Causes and Prevention of Violence. It's got some real lofty name. Uh, it, it comes to be called the Eisenhower Commission. And LBJ loved his commission. So this was another commission he appointed. And this one after, after Bobby Kennedy's killing. It's headed up by Milton Eisenhower. And they develop, I think it was six or seven task forces to look at various aspects of violence in American history. And one of those task forces is the gun task force. And this is the first time any kind of federal institution or federal commission has looked into gun violence and gun ownership and gun culture in U.S. history. 1968, right? I mean, this is a country that that thinks of itself as the gun country, and here it is almost 200 years old. And for the first time, the government wants to know something about, about its past. Um, that commission comes to some pretty remarkable conclusions, and it publishes its conclusions in 1969. But of course, that by that time, Nick, Richard Nixon is in office, and he is not interested in anything a commission from Johnson had to say. And so he uh, he puts those 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 conclusions in a drawer. But the commission left behind its records, and those records are at the Johnson Library in Austin. They too are very rarely used. Um, when the the archivist brought them out, they weren't. They're just in boxes. They're not. They're not organized and processed. And so he he said, just make sure the papers remain in the same order they're in. But like the, you open the box and the papers are sort of spilling out because nobody's ever gone through these. Uh, and so sorting through them, what this commission did was it it did a lot of work for me. These staff members of this commission because they were talking to gun makers and gun dealers, and they were trying to gather all of the information about what had happened over the previous couple decades. And it's all there, all that, all the numbers and everything, all that data. It's in there in the Eisenhower Commission records. And the Eisenhower Commission just it kind of disappears, and it gets overshadowed by its better known contemporary, the Kerner Commission. Right, the Kerner. Right. Commission investigates the urban uprisings of 1967 uh, and also comes to some really dramatic and really smart conclusions that also get shelved. Um, but the, the Eisenhower Commission is, is mostly forgotten. And there's a lot of good stuff in there if you're interested in the post-war history of guns in the United States, especially this question of imports, uh, because they become fascinated by the In the same way that I came to this realization, like, oh my God, there's something really amazing happening with all these imports coming in the United States here. And it's really having this effect that we haven't accounted for. They were saying the same thing back in 1968 as they're collecting all of this data as they're my, my favorite story is how they want to know about, uh, they, they're coming across all these names. So they're, they're talking to, uh, police chiefs in various cities about how many guns they collect at crime scenes and what kind of guns they collect at crime scenes. And they're coming up with this list of various, uh, gun brand names that nobody knows anything about. They're also obscure. And these guns are really cheap. They're made out of like pot metal. They're the kind of guns where if you fire it a few too many times, it's essentially going to melt in your hand or blow up in your hand. These are the guns that around this time, they start to be called Saturday night specials. And so the, the, the Eisenhower commission wants to know where are all these guns coming from? So they're pretty sure that they're coming from a bunch of manufacturers in West Germany. And they write to the embassy in, in Bonn, in West Germany, and they say, can you find out, we want to know as much as we can about all the various manufacturers of these guns. They give them a list of 15 or 20 brand names. The embassy writes back a few weeks later and says, we found them. They're all coming from one factory. There's one factory making 
15 or 20 brand names of guns. And, you know, all they're doing is contracting with American dealers to have those American deal to stamp the names of those American dealers on their guns, like Shorty B and Roscoe and IG is a big one that, that I, I write about in the book. And they, and so the, the commissioners are just shocked by this, which is amazing that like here you have the U.S. government knows nothing about millions of firearms coming into the United States over the previous decades. And it takes this commission to, to, to try to answer all of these questions. And, uh, you know, that was, that was, I think to me, one of the, the best kind of archival experiences. Well, and to put my political science hat on for a minute, you know, the idea of Congress is that they are supposed to be able to gather data. They can ask for anything they want. They have almost unlimited resources. They can just hold hearings and ask experts to show up or ask police chiefs, chiefs for their numbers, and people have to turn them over. And, and it's interesting that currently in 2023, the focus is on the courts and less so on the Congress and the current case that this podcast has done a lot on, the Rahimi case, which involves domestic violence and whether or not we can, uh, the court will overturn this this law, uh, congressional law. Congress looked at information that then led them to say, okay, if you have a domestic violence protective order, we're going to take your gun away. Yet the conversation is about all the things that you began with. It's all about rights and law and uh, what a founding father said, not the material reality. And it is interesting watching people now try to figure out how do you reintroduce what it is that Congress does, which is supposed to be gathering data and dealing with um, material reality. Okay, I thank you. And I love the image of you being at uh, one of my favorite presidential libraries and getting real boxes that are overflowing, which is both a historian's nightmare, but also a dream because you know that nobody else has has been in there to see this stuff. Um, okay, we, we got slightly ahead of the story, but we're going to go back. So you have mentioned 1945, and the book begins with these chapters devoted to the origins of the gun country, which you place in the quarter century after World War II. So let's start there. We've gotten a teaser. So where did these guns come from and how did they get to the United States? Yeah. So there's an origin story here and I, I jumped ahead there. No, so no, we should I talk about it. that. I love it. No, we're all good. We're, it's, it's a conversation. Always on, always, on, always on new books. We don't want to do it by the book. We just want to have That's right. So what we're talking about 1945. We're talking about Europe in ashes. We're also talking about probably something on the scale of, of tens of millions of firearms left over in Europe and in Asia and elsewhere around the world, uh, either literally lying on battlefields or collecting dust in warehouses. Um, by the early 1950s, there is a small cohort of American entrepreneurs who figured this out, and they are scheming of how they can get those guns into the hands of Americans, uh, in part because nobody nobody in Europe wants them, right? This is just in the aftermath of a war. Governments are not interested in distributing these firearms that are sitting in their warehouses. Uh, the, these governments, it's kind of expensive to even destroy these guns. One common way that they would do it if they were going to destroy it is they'd put them on a ship and they'd sail them out to the middle of the North Sea and they'd dump them. But even that was kind of expensive. Uh, the figure I write about, and I think who is the, the most important figure here, his name is Sam Cummings. 
Sam Cummings is the founder of a company called InterArms. He creates InterArms in 1953, 1954. After uh, he, he graduates from George Washington University in 1950, I think it is, 49 or 50. Uh, he does a little touring of Europe while he's in college, and he describes seeing essentially leftover war junk still sitting out in the fields there. So he gets an idea when he's over in Europe that there's stuff there that Europeans can't use that maybe Americans would would be happy to get their hands on. He spends a, a year or two in working for the CIA as an arms analyst. So this is a guy who he just loves guns. He says when he's like five or six years old, he is dismantling a World War One era machine gun. In fact, he grows up in mainline Philadelphia. He's from, uh, he goes to the Episcopal Academy, which is used to be right there on the, <laughs> I know, is that a funny connection? Uh, he goes to Episcopal Academy and the, the, um, the motto of, of interarms is the motto he steals from Episcopal Academy. It's uh, essay quam, I forget what the exact Latin phrase is, but be more than you seem or something like that. Uh, and so he's from mainline Philadelphia, but his family goes on hard times during the Depression. And so uh, he's really sort of motivated to, to, to work hard and, and be this kind of entrepreneur. And what he figures out, he's the guy who really figures out that there are so many guns, that there are all these guns sitting in warehouses in Europe that there's a bustling market for in the United States. And it's not just because like, well, it's America, there's always demand for guns in America. It's because it's after the Second World War, there's a rapid economic recovery in the 1950s. There's a lot more uh, uh, uh uh, um, expendable income. Americans have more leisure time. They're moving out to suburbs with nearby rural areas for hunting and recreation and these kinds of things. And so he's the one who's going to connect that growing possibility for demand in the United States to this tremendous supply over in Europe. And so, you know, there are instances where he's just walking into defense ministries in Europe with a suitcase full of cash and throwing it down and saying, give me, here's, you know, $100,000. How many guns can I take home with me? And these defense ministries are happy to get rid of the guns because it's hard for them to get rid. They don't want them lying around. They're expensive to just maintain and, and keep them up. Sam Cummings says he'll take them off their hands. He'll pay for shipping and handling. He's got it. He's built an extensive logistics network to get these things back to the United States. And over the course of from about the mid 1950s to the mid 1960, really all the way up till 1968, he's importing him personally. He's importing in excess of 100,000 guns a year, sometimes even far more than that. Um, depending on what kind of like big sale he's nailed down somewhere in Europe, it could be, you know, 300,000 rifles from Finland one year, it could be 200,000 from Spain the next year. Uh, he sets up interarms offices essentially across the street from defense ministries uh, all over Europe, just looking for the next big uh, used gun sale <laughs> to, to come on the market. Um, and it's, it's, I argue that it's these war surplus guns that Cummings brings back and others start to follow Cummings as well. There's lots of people who see what he's doing and realize there's a real profit to be made because he's paying less than a dollar each in some cases for these guns. And he's selling them for 10, 15, 20 bucks after bringing them to the US, kind of cleaning them up a little bit. There's a lot of money to be made here. And that's how he makes his millions. You know, when, when Cummings gets on like Americans radar in the 1950s and 60s, sometimes they see him in magazine profiles or something like that. It's almost always the case that he is 
portrayed as this kind of international man of mystery because he's a shady gun dealer. Maybe he's dealing on the black market. He's sold, he's selling big weapons systems to dictators in Latin America. And so the New York Times will come calling every so often and say, what do you know about this, you know, these weapons that have been transferred to this country or whatever. And so he liked to cultivate that international man of mystery mystique but the most quotidian thing he did was sell millions of guns to Americans, and that made him rich. And he did all of that perfectly legally uh, because this was the biggest consumer market for guns in the world. Really, for, for what he was trying to sell, it was the only place in the world he could do that. And I argue that it's those cheap guns that really kick off the post-war boom in gun consumerism. That's that's where we begin to go from 45 million guns to 450 million guns. It's about cheapness. It's about abundance. And it's about selling Americans on the idea that they're, they're entitled to all of this because of their victory in the war, because they are the world's greatest nation, and so on and so forth. Well, and I, I love that part of the book. First of all, you couldn't make Sam Cummings up. Uh, and he, and also what I like about the, the part is that though you're talking about the post-war period, the aspects of consumerism, this idea that he understands his, uh, you use this phrase, his countrymen's appetites for firearms. So what is he? He's an entrepreneur. He's a he's a salesperson, right? He's he's not a founder. He's not a frontiersman. He's not uh, interested in the law or protecting against tyranny. He doesn't have any of the narratives that we've placed on the Second Amendment in the 21st century. Instead, he sees this as an opportunity. Right. So it's interesting. He's man of mystery, but really that's it's nothing mysterious. And, and you make you, you make the argument. It's not about mystery. It's about making money. Uh, and, and one of the things that comes through in this part of the book has to do with uh, gender. You, know, you are constantly talking about men and swagger and 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 how his stories sort of titillate these male journalists. Um, uh, how much of this seems to be about uh, magazines that men buy and and that this is a commodity that men buy. And I was wondering if you just say a little bit about the gender aspect of this new market and who is actually buying these guns and also whether these are uh, all people, all Americans buying these guns or predominantly white men buying these guns. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's when you study the history of consumerism, um, we often, we think about people, who st historians who study consumerism talk about how consumerism is often so often gendered right when we think about the consumer historically that was always seen as the woman who was doing the shopping as the the uh, one responsible for the home and we talk about advertising we think about sort of glossy magazines and the checkout line and that sort of thing and so I really wanted to think about men as consumers and being marketed to, uh, having having objects and consumer goods that are so often coded as masculine being marketed to them. Uh, and again, thinking about like these mythologies we have about American history and the relationship between men and firearms and these sorts of things, and instead seeing how this was created and sold to Americans, right? I think one of the, one of the great things we get out of the literature about guns in the middle of the 19th century is that all of these 
all of these myths we have about guns are things that have been sold to Americans. They're all ideas that have been so literally sold to Americans through marketing and so forth. And Sam Cummings does that as well as anyone in the middle of the 19th century. And he pitches guns to American men as if like this is their entitlement for what they've accomplished in the world, right? And so the 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 gun ads he runs, most of the ads he runs in the 1950s, they're, they're for a, a company called Hunter's Lodge. That's essentially his retail front. That's how he sells guns through the mail. By the 1960s, he'll pass Hunter's Lodge off to other people because he's making so much more money essentially as a distributor rather than a retailer, right? Why sell X number of guns yourself through the mail when you can sell to a thousand people who are then selling them through the mail. He becomes a distributor and sells so much more. But his initial advertising for these guns boasts of kind of the conquest of the world by American men and how and what they get from that conquest, right? He's, so the, the, these are all just absurd numbers he would make up and put in these advertisements. Like I've I've captured $30 million worth of guns from around the world, a, a, a treasure trove of guns captured from the Far East. And you would use these sort of terms that, that all, all, many of these gun descriptions would themselves end up in sort of um, racist stereotypes. But the guns, the guns that he's advertising are so often the guns from the conquered enemy. Uh, they're guns from Germany. They're guns from Italy. They're guns from even Japan. Arasaka rifles are one of his big sellers. Uh, and so this is about selling American men on their triumph in the Second World War. Uh, and that they are entitled to these uh, to these firearms, and of course his his biggest sellers are, or his biggest customers are always going to be white men. They're going to be white middle class men. We're talking about at the moment when the American white middle class is booming in the 1950s and the 1960s. So many more men are becoming interested in shooting sports at this moment, and and Cummings' pitch to them is, you know, you could go to the gun store or the pawn shop, and you could pay $150 for a brand new Remington hunting rifle. It's beautiful, fine craftsmanship. It's got all the bells and whistles, but $150 is a lot of money in the 1950s, right? That's well over $1,000, $1,500 today. Or you could go and buy this Carcano rifle for $10 and uh, bring it out in the field, get a feel for it, see if you like this hunting thing. You could even, he would joke, uh, bag your first deer and throw the gun away out there in the woods. Uh, and then later you could go, and once you've decided that this is for you, that this kind of masculine experience of going out hunting in the woods and doing this these sort of shooting sports is for you, then you could go and buy the expensive uh, the expensive Remington. And this is, you know, this, this, the way he frames the consumer market like this is the first time he and any of the importers really bump, bump up against congressional efforts to, to do something about this flood of guns after the second world war. Uh, you talk in the book about, uh, the fact that there were earlier laws that Congress passed regarding guns. There was the 1934 national firearms act. There was a, a, a federal firearms act in 38, but you see the passage of the 1968 Gun Control Act as particularly important, especially with regard to racial politics. Say just a little bit about why this moment, 1968, is important to your story. 
Yeah, 68 is important to so many stories in U.S. history, right? Even before I started writing this book, if you had asked me what's the hinge of post-war United States, I'd point to 1968. And I, I, I swear it wasn't a self-fulfilling prophecy that I ended up saying 1968 was still important here as well. But it's because of the 1968 Gun Control Act. So this is a product of years of legislative effort. And this, again, Thomas Dodd is the key figure here, the senator from from Connecticut, who really begins investigations into the gun market as early as 1961. And, uh, and I should but, say to people listening who know the other Christopher Dodd from Connecticut, who is his, his son, that's son, right. Okay, that we are not talking about like a man who lived forever, that this this is the Christopher <laughs> Dodd right. senior who was the senator. Thomas Dodd, and then Thomas Dodd, son. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, okay. So. That's right. So, so that's right. The father of, of Christopher Dodd and uh, his other son was an ambassador to somewhere. I forget which one he was. Um, so the, he's 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 senator from 1961 to 19. Uh, he's he's thrown out of office in 1969 in the election of 1968, uh, and he will uh, or sorry, 1970. And um, no, yeah, 59 to 70. Right, that makes sense. He's in there 12 years. He's two two terms in the, the Senate. Uh, he's investigating guns as early as 1961. And he really, these investigations really kick off after Kennedy's killing. Because of course, Kennedy is killed in November of 1963 with a war surplus import rifle, the very same kinds of guns that Sam Cummings has been importing for more than a decade at that point. And of course, people are going to be asking lots of questions of people like Sam Cummings. And he jokes that, you know, he's obviously he's thrilled that he wasn't the one who sold Oswald the rifle. There's a whole story uh, about that rifle there um, as well. And so the the Thomas Dodd begins that in earnest, really sort of aggressively in 1963. And it goes all the way up until 1968 before anything is passed. And because of that legislative process and because of the need to get lots of moderates and even some conservatives to sign on to the 1968 Gun Control Act, uh, it's watered down. It's a bill that's not going to make anyone really happy. And even by 1969, it hasn't made Thomas Dodd happy because he sees, as I write about later, a whole bunch of loopholes and problems with the bill that emerge within months of its uh, of it being enacted at the end of of 1968. And so I, I think this law is so important in 1968 because on the one hand, it shows how poorly Congress or how unwilling Congress is to take really aggressive steps to do something about guns. And that's going to make people on sort of the left and liberals unhappy through the 1970s. And that's where we'll see the emergence of an actual grassroots gun control movement. But on the other hand, there are lots of people on the right who see this as the beginning of a slippery slope toward tyranny, toward totalitarianism. And so it's, it's uh, you know, I don't know if they could have done it any better, but uh, it was such a poorly or, or such a watered down bill that it wasn't going to make anyone happy. And it really wasn't going to have any effect on gun ownership, on gun violence rates, on crime rates, even if you believe that those things are necessarily connected. Um, and so in that sense, it's a it's an important turning point because it's the last time for 25 years that Congress is going to do anything substantive on guns. And it's just uh, it's a it's a failure in so many ways. Uh, the second 
section of the book really looks at what happens after this uh, gun control act. Uh, and you offer something that I, I really enjoyed in chapter eight, which you call an un-NRA uh, history of early gun rights organizations, which I think is just an incredibly important corrective for many people who just are buying a narrative from 2023 that is just being fed to them. Uh, and and this is really, really helpful. So can you talk just a little bit about these groups and how they're combining uh, Cold War and racial anxieties in, in white men uh, in, in ways that are maybe a bit more nuanced than what we've come to talk about? Yeah, so this is, you know, the narrative we have about the kind of radicalization of the gun rights movement is that, uh, you, you know, you read so many books, and these are very good books, right? I'm thinking of like Adam Winkler's Gunfight. It's a very good sure. book about changing yep. laws and politics in the US. But Winkler traces the radicalization of, of gun rights to 1977 and the NRA National Convention, the so-called revolt in Cincinnati, where Harlan Carter and uh, of, uh, a a cohort of hardliners kind of take over the organization, um, take it away from its moderate leadership who were interested in hunting and and sportsmanship and that sort of thing. And I think that's only part of the story. The story has to go back again to 1968 and how various groups around the country responded to it. What you see in, in the year leading up to 1968, or even a few years leading up to 1968, is the coalescing of various radical gun rights groups that see a coming gun legislation out of Congress as that kind of slippery slope. They're using a lot of the language you hear today about uh, gun laws that, that you know, Hitler had gun laws and, and communists are the ones who have gun laws. And, and uh, a lot of that language comes from this moment in the 1960s as they're preparing for something to come out of Congress as Dodd's committee is meeting for many years. And they really start organizing in 1968. And I write about a bunch of them in in uh, this chapter, chapter eight, I think it is. And this is, again, a, a sort of, I didn't expect to find this. I didn't even set out to write this chapter. I didn't know this chapter was even there until I did some of the research. So at, at Brown University, there's the, the Hall Hogue uh, collection of I think it's extremist literature. I think that's how they they describe it. And so I, I just went through there and said, oh, there's a bunch of organizations here who mentioned guns. I've never heard of these organizations. They seem to have fallen off the map by the 1970s. Let me see. Let me see what's in there. And I, a lot of the extremist rhetoric you hear coming much later out of the NRA is already there, already present in these organizations in 1967 and 1968. And it's their context that is shaping how they see gun rights. And their context is one, a booming consumer market where the world's bounty of firearms, many of them military firearms, is available to them. And two, uh, the the social upheavals of the, the mid to late 1960s, particularly the black urban uprisings in places like Harlem and Watts and Newark and Detroit and in a hundred or more places after King is killed of April of in April of 1968. And so these groups come out of a political milieu that is tied up with right-wing anti-communism. Many of them are influenced or even members of organizations like the John Birch Society, 
uh, they see, you know, everyone from Dwight Eisenhower on down in the 1950s as communist stooges or actual communists themselves. And so they are obsessed with anti-communism and they are convinced that their guns are the thing that are going to protect them from a communist invasion of the United States. And this is where we see that this, this interpretation of the Second Amendment, that it's the individual's right to own a firearm, uh, that independent of service in a militia emerges at this moment out of these groups. I mean, it's it's always kind of there floating around, but they're the first ones who kind of organize politically and are pushing this idea. If you read a lot of their literature, they 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 will cite with they they don't even call it the Second Amendment. They'll call it like Article Two, right? Because we don't even have the the Second Amendment isn't even a thing that Americans really think about through the 1960s. Most Americans couldn't even tell you what it was, but these guys could, and they're almost always exclusively men in these organizations. Um, you know, the one I read about the most, because in part because I just had the most material from them, uh, is a group in Southern Oregon that that eventually gets a national presence, tens of thousands of members. And it's called, <laughs> they change their name so many different times. And it's just an alphabet soup of acronyms. They're at one point, the National Association for the Preservation for, of the Right to Keep and Pair Arms. And so I give them a shorter name. Uh, in the book, but they're the ones who are, you know, they're taking, they're, they're beginning at this, this anti-communism, they're mixing it with their access to a gun consumer market that is going to be threatened by impending legislation. And they're watching the world fall apart and saying, this is communist inspired. This is why we need our guns. And this kind of, of paranoia, I think is what shapes that new interpretation of the second amendment that'll go up to the NRA and that'll be everywhere in 2023. And so that's why I call it the, the Cold War Second Amendment. It's not it's not 1791's Second Amendment. It's not the Founders' Second Amendment. It comes out of a very different context. And we've erased that context in our discussions of it today. Uh, before we start talking about the conclusion of the book, I ought to say two things. One is this is an incredibly accessible book. So what I found so impressive is you're you're using so much secondary material. You're using so much archival uh, material. You're using everything, yet it is a very readable page-turning type book. Uh, so something that could be picked up by anybody, could be assigned to undergraduates, would be of interest to graduate students. It, it really operates and, and is important for all scholars uh, who are researching this period and thinking about the Second Amendment. So very accessible book. And second, I just want to I just want to say how envious I am that you have all these Herblock cartoons because when I was doing my early research on guns and I saw that collection and the prices to use and reprint, I just thought, well, one, wasn't it interesting that Herblock was a cart very very famous cartoonist for those who are not familiar was so focused on guns, had so many insights that seem as if they're ripped from a 2023 headline. And I just love that you found this way to integrate them throughout the book. They're, they're, they were genius uh, by him and they're used really ingeniously by you. Now you conclude by thinking about where we are, because as you sort of said, in terms of the origin story of this book, this isn't you know a history book because you know you were trained in this period. This really came to you because of where you were living and what was happening where you were living. And you go back to the start of the book, which is the murder of Yoshihatori and the contrast between gun politics in Japan and the United States. And you write that you'd like to unmake 
the gun country. And I and I want you to just unpack briefly what that means to you and what it might take, uh, given that what you what you've uncovered is this came about because of very unusual circumstances, a bunch of extra weapons hanging around in uh, Europe and Asia and other places that and uh, and some very ingenious salespeople who understood. Uh, their potential in a very particular market <laughs> at a very particular time in American consumer history. So what do you mean by unmaking and, you know, what, what would that look like? Yeah, it's a line that I guess it's the very last line of the book that I just mean, and, and to be sort of ironic in many different ways. And one of them, you know, it's just the, the sort of historian's observation that everything is contingent, right? That we are we are not like naturally the gun country. There is nothing in the DNA of a person born in the United States that that inclines them to be a gun owner or to accept a society in which everyone is armed uh, legally and and. So, you know, in part, the, the argument that, that the, the point of that was to say that this was a product of a very contingent moment, right? There's, there's nothing in 1945 that naturally leads to 2023 and 450 million guns that had to be made. And therefore, it can be unmade. But I don't know how to unmake it. This is the problem, right? Is, and, you know, I've, I've tried not to be I try not to be cynical going through this because I, I look at things like, you know, the Parkland kids in 2018 and Moms Demand, these organizations that are doing real difficult and in some cases dangerous organizing. And I admire that so much. But again, I think they're often having these conversations at more sort of abstract levels rather than the reality of 400 and 450 million guns, or even if we're looking at something like AR-15s, where I think on the low end, estimates are there's something like 20 million in the United States, right? And when when the assault weapons ban was it came into effect in 1994, there may have been half a million at most in the United States. And so on the low end, there's 20 million today. I think that's a low estimate. I think it's 30 or 40 million, something like that, especially with the incredible boom of the last five, six, seven years or so. And so what do you do about 40 million AR-15s? Right? And so I think there's there's been a strategic shift in this kind of thinking over the last 20 years or so from talking about gun control to talking about talking about gun safety. And at first I thought that was a that was a kind of, uh, well, it, it was strategic, right? Because nobody wants to talk about being controlled. People want to talk about being safe. Even though in the 1960s, this word control, there was a lot of fight over this word control and control was seen as a manly thing, right? Because men control their environment. And so I write about this, this idea that gun control was also framed in a very masculine way in the 1960s because you're, you're giving into your passions and emotions when you're obsessed with these material objects like guns. Real men can control themselves and can control their natural environment. But increasingly, I've come to see gun safety as a kind of concession to the fact that the guns aren't going anywhere, right? We are not going to control the guns. We can only keep ourselves safe from the guns. And so, you know, remaking the gun country or unmaking the gun country means building some sort of society in which we are not constantly anxious that that somebody is armed or that somebody is is going to, you know, like thinking about this Rahimi case, right? I mean, here's here's a guy who is 
the worst poster child you could find for the law-abiding citizen who gets angry in the drive-through at a Whataburger and starts firing off his his gun. Like, how do we live in a society in which those people can't do that? I don't know how to make us safe from those people. But if 75 years ago, a handful of people started to make the gun country, you know, we have people today who are who are thinking about ways to to unmake it. And maybe it's not going to happen in, in our lifetimes, but but hopefully our children can can find a, a safer world. I also think that your book does a fair amount for people who are thinking about these questions to understand outside the narrative that is presented to most of us. So it's very, very hard, no matter how much you have studied, to avoid the narrative that is out there, one of uh, individual rights, et cetera. And here, because of the focus on consumerism, I think that that opens doors for thinking about, well, how do we consume uh, guns today? And I think in the uh, one of the cases where the um, uh, the uh, uh, Sandy Hook parents sued, you know, they used the ad, and you talk about this in the book, about consider your man card reissued for the Bushmaster. And so one of the things that I think happened in that case and, and is what it allowed it to be successful was because they were able to tie it to consumer laws. And so part of what you're doing in this book, I think, is is suggesting that we ourselves now are tied into a very different consumer regime, not one based on cons- anti-communist behavior, but but one that's based on something else. And you're not trying to answer those questions because you're a very careful historian. But I think that the close of the book really opens up you know, the potential for why this book is so important to answering questions today. Anyway, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me today and also to write this book. It is it is a true contribution to what we know about guns and gun politics and gun history in the US. And I, I hope everybody listening is going to order themselves a copy. Well, thank you so much, Susan. Thank you for, for all of the kind things you've said about the book. Thanks for having me. And, and this is a great conversation. Thank you. Well, thanks. This is Andrew McEvitt, who's written Gun Country, Gun Capitalism, Culture and Control in Cold World, Cold World America, uh, published by University of North Carolina Press on, in 2023. Thanks so much for listening.